Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Jernardin Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Whole Story, by Sheshika on Complexity and Causation. Perhaps you've sat through a particularly incoherent film, sighed and said to a friend, well, that wasn't much more than the sum of its parts. Entertainment should be more than an unconnected series of celebrity cameos or action scenes. A movie like Chariots of Fire becomes a classic not only because of a good theme song and some memorable moments like the opening scene where they run on the beach. It also needs to have a well-structured and coherent narrative and compelling characters whose development we follow throughout the film. Of course, this isn't the only thing people look for in films, as shown by the successful career of Quentin Tarantino, but it shows how deeply we believe that coherence and structure give rise to something new. They produce holes, which are indeed more than just the sum of their parts. If this is true of Chariots of Fire, it is also true of plain old chariots. They are more than mere heaps of axles, wheels, and carriages, such as you might find lying around at the chariot-making factory. In fact, it is only once the parts have been put together as an organized assembly with a certain structure that they become a chariot. Thanks to this structure, a chariot can do things that a heap of chariot parts cannot, such as carry Arjuna into war against his foes on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. Furthermore, what goes for the chariot also goes for the charioteer. A person is not just a random sequence of individual thoughts and feelings, but an organized unity of cognition and conception, who persists over time. That is why a person can say, I, as in, I saw chariots of fire last night, and I still can't get the theme song out of my head. Merely using the word I in this way presupposes that experience is not just a sequence of disunited parts or impressions, first the watching of a movie, later remembering that theme song. Rather, there is an enduring and united self. This, at any rate, is the view of the Vaisheshika philosopher Kanada. We saw last time that he is a defender of metaphysical realism about substances, their properties, and the universals that apply to these things. He is also a realist about complex things. This means that, for him, over and above an aggregate or collection of parts, there is a further object called a whole. Holes include the middle-sized objects of ordinary experience. When you hold a book in your hands, you are holding something that is more than just pages, covers, and spine. When you ride in a chariot, you are borne along by something more than axles, wheels, and carriage. Though he probably didn't realize he was agreeing with Kanada, the 20th century British philosopher Bertrand Russell captured this view nicely when he said that a whole is a new single term distinct from each of its parts and from all of them. It is one not many, and it is related to the parts, but has a being distinct from theirs. The Vaisheshika view on wholes thus agrees with both Bertrand Russell and common sense, which sounds like an unbeatable combination. Unfortunately, it also faces a formidable opponent, in the shape of Buddhist philosophers who took such objects as books and chariots, the objects of everyday experience, to be fabrications or constructions of our minds. The Buddhists offered two distinctive lines of arguments for this apparently outlandish claim. 
First, they suggested that the concepts of things like chariots or books are formed from nothing more than momentary sensory experiences. If this is so, then there need be no persisting chariot, only a stream of fleeting impressions. Second, the Buddhists also doubt that there is a single enduring person who is experiencing these impressions one after another. A person seems to be a kind of whole made out of parts, but it is a central Buddhist tenet that there is no enduring self, and that giving up belief in the illusion of the self is a step on the road to liberation. An obvious objection that their Vaisheshikas can make to the Buddhists is this. If a chariot is not really a whole, but just a bunch of parts, then what is the difference between the chariot and a random grab bag of unrelated things, like the collection whose members are Gina the Crocodile, an old videotape of Chariots of Fire, and the Moon? There you have three things which, even more obviously than the latest Tarantino effort, fail to form a single coherent whole. On the Buddhist view, though, such a random assortment of objects would be no different from a chariot. Since this seems hard to believe, the Vaisheshikas conclude that there is a metaphysical difference between the two cases. The random assortment is not a true whole, whereas the chariot, or the chariot driver, is one real thing made up of parts. To this, the Buddhists respond that we distinguish the two sorts of case simply as a matter of convention. Human concerns and interests make it more useful to speak of a chariot than of a collection consisting of a crocodile, a videotape, and the moon, but neither whole is more real than the other. You don't have to be Bertrand Russell to think that so far Vaisheshika seems to have the better of this debate. The Buddhists insist on banishing familiar objects and persons from the inventory of reality, whereas Vaisheshika wants to validate our everyday assumptions. The burden of proof would thus seem to lie with the Buddhists. Realizing this, they offer several arguments for their anti-realist position. For one thing, at least some of the objects of everyday experience actually are mere sums of parts. A forest is nothing more than a bunch of trees, an army just a bunch of soldiers. Or consider again the film Chariots of Fire. No matter how coherent its narrative, it is actually just a series of images which are shown in rapid succession to produce the illusion of continuity. Furthermore, when shown on a digital screen, the movie is just built up out of individual pixels of light, which cohere into a single image, much like an impressionist painting seen from a distance. Clearly then, some apparently real holes are nothing more than assemblages of parts whose unity is a matter of illusion or convention. So, don't we have good reason to suspect that this may be true in other cases as well? It seems extravagant to assume that there are ever real holes when we know that a mere collection of parts can generate a convincing, yet false, impression that there is such a hole. In fact, Vaisheshika is particularly vulnerable to this line of argument, since this school holds that the familiar objects around us, like crocodiles and chariots, are actually collections of atoms. So why not think that the crocodile or the chariot is just an illusion created by the conjunction of the atoms? As we said already last time, though, the Vaisheshikas are not the sort of atomists tempted by this reductionist move. They remind us that individual atoms are too small to be perceived, so it cannot be that when I look at a crocodile I am seeing a vast number of atoms and bringing together my experience of them as one alarmingly large animal. To the contrary, I cannot see the individual atoms at all. 
This means that the crocodile in front of me must be a real thing over and above the atoms. If the only real things present were atoms, there would be nothing that I could perceive. Another Buddhist argument focuses on the relation between a supposed whole and the parts of which it is made. Kanada and his Vaisheshika followers want to say that a whole inheres in its parts. We might more loosely say that it resides or occurs in them. A book thus resides in its pages and cover. Now, the Buddhist tries to force the realist into a dilemma by asking, does the entire book reside in each page? That seems impossible. If the book is entirely in page 56, it can't also be entirely in page 57, since it would be in two different places at the same time. So the book must reside only partly in each page. But then the whole is actually divided up, indeed into as many bits as it has parts, whereas the realist's idea was to insist that the whole is a unity over and above its parts. To get around this, Vaisheshika thinkers are forced to clarify their conception of the part-whole relation. This means explaining more carefully what they mean by inherence. Let's first consider the kind of inherence involved when a universal inheres in its particulars. The Vaisheshikas are convinced that the universal nature of crocodiles is a real thing, but they are also convinced that its reality depends on their being actual particular crocodiles like Gina. If we got rid of her and all other crocodiles, there would no longer be a universal. Thus, we can say that the universal is inseparable from its instances. Unlike the transcendent forms acknowledged by Platonists in ancient Greek philosophy, and more like the kind of imminent universal recognized by their Aristotelian colleagues. The same goes for the inherence relation between a whole and its parts. The chariot is more than just the axle, wheels, and carriage, but could not exist if these parts did not exist. On the other hand, the case of the whole is not exactly like the case of the universal. The Vaisheshikas assume that universals are eternal and uncreated. Though they depend on particular instances to exist, there are always some instances around so that the universals never vanish. This is not true of wholes. A book, a videotape, or, sadly, a crocodile will all break up and disappear eventually. For this reason, Vaisheshika recognizes the parts that make up a whole as a special kind of cause, which they call a substrate. The difference between this and the universal case is that the universal can survive even when its instances do not. The universal nature of crocodile is untroubled by the fact that crocodiles die as long as there are other crocodiles born to replace them. It only needs there to be some relevant instances, but it doesn't matter which ones. A whole, by contrast, cannot survive without its particular part surviving. Despite this difference, it still makes sense to think of both universals and wholes as having a relation of inherence to their particulars and their parts, respectively. They are both subject to a special kind of causation. Universals depend on their instances, and a whole depends on its parts for its survival. Thus, the instances are causes of the universal, and the parts are causes of the whole. This Vaisheshika idea of inherence is a contribution to a long-running debate in India about causation. It has been with us pretty well throughout this entire podcast series. The earliest cosmological speculations in Vedic literature were fundamentally an inquiry into causes. As Bimal Matilal has pointed out, philosophic activity in India arose out of the cosmogonic speculations of the Vedas and the Upanishads. 
the all-important business of philosophy was to attempt to discover some simple unitary cause for the origin of this complex universe. The influential tradition of Sanskrit grammar also had causal reflection at its heart, with Panini's system of karakas, or relations between verb and noun. This is based on an underlying causal model, in which the verb in a sentence designates an event, and the nouns in the sentence contribute somehow to bringing about that event, as an agent, as an instrument, or what have you. The same idea informed Indian epistemology, and led to the development of the theory of pramanas, the processes that cause an event of awareness and knowledge. We saw that in Nyaya epistemology, four such pramanas are recognized, perception, inference, comparison, and testimony. In each case, Nyaya offers an explanation in terms of causation, answering such questions as, what causes a perceptual experience? What are the distinguishing causal factors of true and false perceptual experiences? Under what conditions does knowledge of the premises of an argument cause knowledge of the conclusion? And so on. So anyone who reads ancient Indian philosophical literature will quickly get accustomed to these sorts of causal accounts. Even more quickly, they will get used to running across the same examples again and again. Nyaya and Vaisheshika philosophers almost invariably illustrate their discussions of causation with one of three examples. The first is the case of the ceramic pot. Its causes include, most obviously, the potter, but also the potter's wheel and stick, and, far less obviously, such things as the two halves of the pot which the potter joins together, the contact between each of the pot halves, and the contact between them and the stick. A second standard example is a cloth made of threads. Among its causes are the threads from which it is woven, the weaver, the shuttle, the loom, and various instances of contact, like the contact between the threads that are woven together so that they touch. Third, we have the example of chopping down a tree. Here, the felling of the tree is caused by an axe, by its contact with the tree, by the lumberjack who wields the axe, and so on. Notice how in these examples, parts are included amongst the causes, like the threads and the cloth. Such parts are so-called substrate or inherence causes, as contrasted with so-called non-substrate or non-inherence causes, like the weaver or the contact between the threads, and instrumental causes like the weaver's shuttle. Notice also that the effect of these causes might be a thing, like a pot or a cloth, but might also be an event, like a tree's being felled. Events too can have substrates though, which in this case would be the tree. Listeners familiar with ancient philosophy may be tempted to detect here a parallel with the four types of cause recognized by Aristotle. Doesn't the Vaisheshika substrate cause sound a lot like the material cause in his philosophy? Perhaps, but it's not quite the same. The parts of an object are not necessarily identical with the material from which it is made. That would be clay for the pot, wood for the chariot, and obscure 1970s martial arts flicks in the case of a Quentin Tarantino movie. Also, an immaterial substance can obviously not be an Aristotelian material cause, but the Vaisheshikas would admit that it can be a substrate cause. The soul, for instance, is the substrate cause of mental events. All of this puts Vaisheshika in a position to respond to another Buddhist argument against holes. The Buddhist points out that two distinct objects cannot occupy the same region of space at the same time. 
You can stuff a cloth inside a pot, but only because the pot is hollow. The two of them cannot literally be in the same place. In this sense, matter is impenetrable. But if holes were real over and above their parts, they would violate this rule. The two halves of the pot clearly are in exactly the same place as the whole pot, so the Vaisheshika has to admit that there is more than one thing in the same location. To this, the Vaisheshika can say that the rule about impenetrability needs to be qualified. Though it is true that material objects cannot usually occupy the same space, this needn't be true if one inheres in the other as in a substrate. In fact, the whole has to be in the same place as its parts, because whenever the parts move, the whole has to move with them. But Buddhist philosophy offers yet another way to unravel the realist theory of wholes. This argument is due to the late 6th century Buddhist Dhammakirti. He cites the example of a cloth made from threads of different colors. Suppose some of the threads are blue and others not. What color, then, is the whole cloth? It clearly isn't blue, since some of its parts are not blue, nor is it not blue, since some of its parts are blue, but to say that it is both blue and not blue is a contradiction. So, on closer inspection, there is no color that this multicolored cloth can be. This suggests that the cloth as a whole is not real. Damakirti's argument is strikingly similar to one proposed by a contemporary philosopher, David Lewis. He wanted to attack the idea that things that persist over time are holes made up of so-called temporal parts, or time slices. According to this proposal, a cloth would persist over time by having parts that exist at different times. But if this were so, Lewis pointed out, then whole objects would have contrary properties. Suppose I dye a white cloth red. Then one and the same cloth is both white before I dye it, and then red after I dye it. If the cloth is one and the same whole thing over time, then it has contrary properties. But of course, the Vaisheshika philosophers remain determined to weave genuine holes into the fabric of reality. Yet again, they claim that the Buddhist argument can be defeated if we just define our terms more carefully. The Buddhists are trading on the idea that a cloth is either just blue or just not blue, or more generally, that a given object either has a property or not. But things are not that simple. There are actually two different ways of having a property, which the Vaisheshikas call pervasive and non-pervasive. A property occurs pervasively if it occurs in every part of an object, like the red in Little Red Riding Hood's cloak. But red can also occur non-pervasively, like red in the plaid tartan of a Scotsman's kilt. The kilt does have color pervasively, since every part of it is colored, but it has particular colors only non-pervasively, since no one color appears in every part of the kilt. With this distinction in hand, the Buddhist argument is shown to be like the Scotsman's kilt, impressive at first glance, but nothing underneath. One lesson to be drawn from the example of the multicolored cloth is that holes may or may not share properties with their parts. It may be tempting to think that holes must inherit all their features from their parts. Just think again of the sort of inference we've mentioned numerous times in previous episodes based on sampling. We infer that the whole sea is salty because a randomly selected drop of sea water is salty. The reason this inference is valid is that the saltiness of each drop guarantees the saltiness of the whole sea. Sometimes, though, holes lack properties that their parts have. A thread may be entirely blue, yet be part of a cloth that is not entirely blue. 
A thread weighs very little, but can be part of a heavy tapestry. Conversely, a whole can have properties that are lacking in the parts of the whole. A pot is a suitable vessel for making stew, whereas one half of the pot would be quite unsuitable. A chariot can convey Arjuna into battle once he finally makes up his mind to fight, whereas no axle, wheel, or carriage can do this by itself. And according to the Vaisheshikas, the pot, the cloth, and the chariot are all holes that have the property of visibility, despite being made from invisible atoms. A curious thing about these disputes is that Kanada and Vatsyayana apparently just wanted to defend common sense from the Buddhists, yet wound up adopting highly theoretical and speculative ideas. To distinguish between pervasive and non-pervasive properties, or classify the different ways that one thing can inhere in another, does not fly in the face of our intuitive beliefs, the way that Buddhist teachings may seem to do. Yet neither are they just part and parcel of our common sense worldview. Much as Nyaya makes sophisticated proposals about epistemology in order to uphold the reliability of our everyday inferences, so Vaisheshika offers a sophisticated metaphysics to defend the reality of everyday things like pots, chariots, and textiles. Under dialectical pressure, the Vaisheshikas were provoked into making ever more subtle distinctions and into recognizing new types of real entities, such as inherence and absences. Taken together, though, their theory remains a single, admirably coherent system. Vaisheshika philosophy is, appropriately enough, more than the sum of its parts. So far, we've talked about this system largely under the rubric of metaphysics, because Vaisheshika thought is above all an attempt to classify and understand reality. But, as should be clear by now, many of their ideas actually seem to fall under the heading of physics. Notably, this is true of their atomism, which in ancient Greek philosophy, and for that matter still today, would count as a contribution to the physical sciences, not metaphysics strictly speaking. And Kanada has ideas about other fundamental concepts in physics, such as space and time. Until we say more about this, we won't have told you the whole story, so join us next time for a final part of this series on the Vaisheshika school, here on The History of Philosophy in India. Allah,